There you go. Now, before I do anything, actually, let me let me let me read to you the text for tonight, and then say a few words or more words. So tonight we are in Matthew 4, 1 to 11. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. Amen. Now, um, before we get into the introduction and the sermon, let me say a few words. What? What? Let me say a few words about the series for those of you who haven't been here. So, initially, the way we started off was a short six-week series about Jesus' meetings with people in the Gospels, right? And then we went to, first of all, we went to the woman at the well, and the theme was thirst, then Nicodemus, and Pontius Pilate, and the two thieves on the cross, and an invalid man, he was the, the invalid man who was paralyzed for 38 years, and then three anonymous followers, right? Those people that Jesus tells them, let the dead bury their dead, and so on, right? So, I said last week, but let, actually, let me, let me start off like this. So, there was this Romanian philosopher. He said one point. He said, you cannot build a good house with bad bricks. Right? You cannot build a good house with bad bricks. Right? So, the purpose, the way I started off was, the purpose of this was to build us up. To look more closely at Jesus. Right? We are here because all of us met Jesus personally. Right? So the purpose was to help us become better bricks so that the church and the house of God is stronger in all world. Now, I said last week that this is not going to be an ordinary meeting, right? This is, these were ordinary people, most of them, <laughs> um, who met Jesus personally. Tonight's meeting is a different kind of meeting. And as you heard from the text, Jesus is not meeting a person, he's meeting devil, the devil, Satan himself. Right? 
Now, again, as you can see on the, I almost said the board, on the screen, each meeting had a theme, right? Thirst, birth, truth, suffering, healing, and then the last one, fellowship or, or discipleship. Tonight's meeting has the theme of temptation. Another thing, as we went through the series, was we were asking this question. Who am I as I see myself in this person, right? Who am I as I see myself in the woman at the well meeting Jesus? Who am I as I see myself in Nicodemus meeting Jesus? And so on and so forth. The question changes for tonight, changes perspective. We're not going to ask that question. We're going to ask, how can I imitate Christ in my personal struggle with temptation? Or, to put it in those words, how, who am I as I see myself in Christ? And then finally, um, I don't know if you noticed here, the series was called Meeting Jesus for the First Time. All those people met Jesus for the first time. Tonight's meeting is not a first time kind of meeting, right? Jesus is God, right? He's from everlasting to everlasting. And then you look at one point, he says that um, he saw the devil from, fall from heaven like lightning, right? So he, they met. Each one knew who the other was, right? Jesus and Satan, right? So it's not a first-time meeting type of meeting, right? So tonight we're talking about Satan meeting Jesus, and the theme is temptation. Now, there are in the Bible passages that no matter how many times you read them, they get, instead of becoming easier or simpler, they become more complex and probably more mysterious. This is one of them. Why? Well, there's at least, let's put it like this, two, at least two reasons why. First of all, have you ever wondered how does or how did temptation look like for the sinless Son of God? For us, we know how temptation feels like and usually has to do with things we have fallen for already. But he was sinless, right? He never sinned. There was nothing hidden in him. He never gave in to temptation. So how did temptation feel like and look like to him? That's one. The second reason is, now, I don't know about you, but I've never been tempted to turn stones into bread. Let me take this off. I've never been tempted to turn stones into bread or go up on the roof of this church and jump off to prove who I am. But he was tempted with this by the devil. So the question is, how do we relate to that? How, what does that have to do with us? So in order to answer that, we have to, we have to look at the text. Now, Aaron, the end of... We're still in the introduction. The end of chapter 3 has, is very closely linked to, to chapter 4, right? At the, at the end of chapter 3, the voice of God is calling out of heaven saying, this is my son whom I love, right? And then in chapter 4, we get Satan coming up saying, are you the son? What does that mean? Right? Now, I want you to remember this because I'm going to mention this a few times through the sermon. 
um, through the Gospels and through the whole Bible, but especially through the Gospels, um, there's a, an alignment of two images. On the one hand, we have Israel, the people of God, Jew, the Jews, right? And on the other hand, we have the image of Christ, Jesus, right? And as we progress, Jesus will identify himself more and more and more with the people of God. And I'll try to show you that in the text. Now, why am I saying this? Well, in the first chapter of Matthew, if you remember, Jesus is aligned in that, um, uh, what do you call it, genealogy, right? From Abraham to David and then to himself, right? In chapter 2, Jesus goes into Egypt and comes out of Egypt, just like Israel did, right? Then throughout the Bible, we have Israel being called the, vine, the vineyard of God, right? The vine. But then if you read, for example, Isaiah 5, which I recommend you do, because it's quite mysterious what's going on there, Israel is called the rotten vine, right? There are, they prove to be throughout the Bible, the rotten vine. But then Jesus comes and says, I am the vine. So there's a number of things that happen to Jesus through which he identifies with the people of God or with the Israel. One of them is, Israel spends 40 days in the desert, he spends 40, 40 years in the desert, he spends 40 days in the desert. Then we think of the first temptation. Adam uh, was tempted in the garden. Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, in the desert. Adam had plenty, of a had plenty and a companion. Jesus was hungry and alone. Adam sinned and brought our downfall. Jesus, the second Adam, prevailed and brought our release. Now, what are we to make of all these things? Because these are all linked to Jesus fighting temptation and fighting the devil, or responding to the devil, rather. So, that was introduction. We have, we have three temptations in the text. I'll read them and then we go, we'll go in detail with each one. So, temptation number one, doubt, um, doubt God's provision and love in the face of circumstances. Number two, twist God's word for personal advantage. And three, an explicit attempt to break the first and greatest commandment. Might sound a bit abstract, but I hope I'll make them clear. So let me read to you the text for the first one. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. I want you to notice, first of all, one thing. Satan always tempts by introducing a small element of doubt. Right? Remember, Adam and Eve, right? The first, uh, what does he say? Has God really said whatever he said? Same thing here. If you are the son, right? A small element of doubt. If you would have to look at your own lives, would there be some element of doubt you can spot? Think about it. But what he does, what the devil does, is he targets our trust. He targets our allegiance to God. Because when we are in doubt, 
introducing a small, a small element of doubt because when we are in doubt, we are weak. Not necessarily weak, but we are vulnerable. So I would like you to notice another thing then. He never tempts with big things. He never says, look, here's a big pool of filth. Go and jump in it. You'll be fine. No, he just he presents it like it's something good for you, right? There's some satisfaction in it. There's some good that happens to you if you do it. He's very subtle. Always very subtle. Because if you're subtle, you have more chances to succeed, right? He presents temptation as something beneficial. If you look at these three temptations, they're not what we would... If somebody would tell us, make a list of the worst temptations ever, probably one of them would not be, I'm walking down the street and I'm so hungry that I feel like eating stones or feel like turning stones into bread, right? You don't think of that as a temptation. But for the, God, uh, for the Son of God, it was. We'll see why. Right? So there's no, there's no temptation about adultery here, or there's no temptation to cheat on your taxes, or to rob, or steal, or hurt people, or, I don't know, beat up kids, or whatever. Right? The first temptation is about food. And what you should notice here is that he takes advantage of small things small challenges, small points of vulnerability in our lives. Jesus was hungry after 40 days and 40 nights. And they're sitting face to face and he says, just make some bread, man. You're hungry. It's good for you. Right? He's very specific at the same time. Hunger. Now, I was reading some stuff about fasting, and apparently they did some research in different contexts, and you can go 41 or 42 days before um, undoable damage happens to you without bread and water. So, people, if, if people look at this and say, well, yeah, but I mean... Jesus must have been extremely hungry, right? He's the son of God. This is kind of a miraculous type of fasting. And then, of course, he could make it, right? 40 days. I mean, he's the son of God. He could do 100 days, not just 40. But it's not, that's not how it works. That's not what it's about. It's not miraculous because men, regular men, these days have done 41, 42 days before they got really, really sick. Now... Remember, I mentioned the two images, right? Israel and Jesus, right? So, what Jesus is doing here, what Jesus is doing here, is he is fulfilling the Old Testament typology, right? What did Israel do? He, um, well, he, not he, Israel, the people, I mean. Uh, what they did was they faced the rigors of the desert, 40 years, right? But what did they do while doing that? They complained they murmured, and they didn't trust God. But who was this God? This was the God who, in front of their own eyes, performed the miracles. Right? The Red Sea, water from the rock, manna from heaven. They promised that their shoes will not wear off. The birds from the sky to eat, right? And they still complained. 
It's funny how, you know, when Jesus met Pilate, uh, Herod and the others, when they met Jesus the first time, they were saying, like, can you perform a miracle and I'll believe you? For 40 years, Israel have seen nothing but miracles. And they were still deaf and blind. So, again, what Jesus does here, he puts himself in a sort of position, almost like a mirror image. Extreme hunger, alone in the desert, and driven by the Spirit to be there. And then the devil comes. What does he do? He says, if you are the Son of God, you've done your 40 days, it's fine, you're hungry, I'm not suggesting anything wicked, just make some bread. Now, in our context, in our personal private lives, our personal discomforts are used by Satan to tempt us. He tempts us. I said that the, uh, the first temptation is doubt God's provision and love in the face of circumstances. Every single circumstance in our lives is used to doubt, first of all, God's provision in that specific situation, whatever you're facing. I'm not going to make it to the flight. Right? And secondly, His love. Why am I in this, God? Do you still love me? We, in some circumstances in our lives, we behave as if God is dead. Remember the great philosopher, right, Nietzsche? He's unfortunately famous for a line, God is dead. But he said that because Christians were behaving as if he was dead, right? wasn't any great philosophical statement. It was observation of what was going on during the 19th and 20th century. Christians were not behaving like that. People were not behaving as God was alive. Now, it is pretty easy to trust God when flights are on time, when we make it, when kids are good at home and you're sleeping and you're not tired and all that, right? But... Catalin told me a story last week. Um, a man, the only, guy, the only person in the family providing for the family, breaks both his arms. Um, he has three kids at home. He has casts on for like three months or more, six months, I don't know. And then he goes back to the hospital. They realize their hand, the hands are put back in the wrong way. Break, they break the hands again, six more months, and so on and so forth. Trust God then. Now, subtle as the temptation was, Jesus cut it off from the root, right? What does he say? He says, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, through the Gospels, we find Jesus saying things like, I say what the Father gives me to say, or I do only what the Father gives me to do, right? So, basically, Jesus will not do anything that the Father didn't give him to do. He never does anything of his own accord. He always is in tune with what the Father says. And why that, that's important and why? Because that ensures that in any circumstance, in any situation, in any kind of humiliation, under any burden, 
the father uh, he will do only what the father tells him to do now the question is in this specific situation he's in the desert he's hungry and the devil comes to him and says make some bread you're hungry and he has the ability to do it should he take some personal independent um, how should I put it should he independently of the father from the father decide yeah I'm going to make some bread should he or should he not and of course he will not and a small parenthesis in order to see how Jesus relates to the father it's quite unique in the Bible read John 17 I was reading it this morning and it's quite unique Look at it from this point of view, from where Jesus was in the desert. Go and read John 17 and think about how he relates to the Father. Now, back to our problem. Christ offers no argument for his sonship, right? He never said, he knows who he is. And how does he fight? He appeals to Scripture. Why does he appeal to Scripture? I said that there's, again, I'm referring to two images. Israel and Jesus. He goes back to Scripture because he com- he um, he's reenacting. He's re um, he's going through the same challenges as the people of Israel did. Now, where does he go when he goes to Scripture? He goes to the Old Testament, and he goes here. This is Deuteronomy 8. Deuteronomy 8 says this. Moses writes, Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way. So, as I read this, please try and... Please try and see if this is not an image of what's going on in Matthew with Jesus and the devil. Again. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep, keep his commandments. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor, the, nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes, did, your clothes did not wear out, and your feet did not swell during these 40 years. Know then... In your heart that as a man disciples his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. So isn't this a picture of what's going on here? Jesus knows why he's referring to this text. He's referencing this text because this text is about him, right? So do you see Jesus as the obedient son? He's doing what what Israel couldn't do. So Jesus is thinking about all these things as he's facing Satan. And in the end, does he complain? Israel did. Does he murmur? Israel did. Does he fail to trust God? Israel did. But no, no, and no. He doesn't fail. And he goes to Deuteronomy to fight temptation. He says, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth mouth of the Lord. Now, to close the first point. What this means is that the Bible is not more important than eating. Don't leave this place thinking that I'm saying that. 
I'm not saying that. The point is, the Word of God is so important for a Christian that if there is ever any sort of tension between what God asks and what our immediate circumstances ask, the Word of God should win every single time. Right. Number two. The second temptation is to twist God's word for personal advantage. Let me read it again. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, the first temptation was to drive Jesus to use the word. Sorry. The, the first temptation drove Jesus to use the word. The second temptation finds Satan using that word to trip Jesus up. He's saying, I can quote the Bible too. And he can. Right? So the, the, um, so the devil takes him to the temple... The temple is a huge, enormous building. And he says, jump up. Prove who you are. Right? This is, the, the problem is this. That, that's, this is the problem. An, an authenticating, authenticating problem. Right? Show everybody who you are. Show that you are the real son of God. Now, imagine and remember through what, from what you wrote, um, read in the Bible. At the temple, there was always people. If it were for him to jump off, there would surely be people whose testimony would count, right? These were the high priests or whoever was serving in the temple. And if they saw him and then jump and then get back up, they would probably believe. Maybe. And if Jesus is the Messiah, God would not let his Messiah die, right? After all, the devil says, there's passages in the Bible that say that, say that God will not let you die, right? If stuff happens to you. Now, somebody called this an attack on the sanity of faith. Why is that? Because it's insane to quote and use the Bible <laughs> So it's insane to use let me let me come back to my initial statement. Somebody called this an attack on the sanity of faith. Why is that? Because to use the Bible or to use scripture like Satan did in this meeting is insane. Literally. Now, we have to be careful because there's some tradition in our evangelical world, subculture and all, where some churches, some people, some cultures use verses outside of context or there's this super spirituality where people just 
blurt out verses for any situation or challenge that you might have in your life and feel Christian, right? We have to be careful with that because that's the problem here. We, we should not quote verses out of context. We should not use Bible outside of context. Bible should be judged. Any kind of verse in the Bible should be judged um, by any other verse in the Bible, not in any other way. Let me make it very clear. Now, in this context, Jesus is not saying, do not put me to the test. Him, Jesus. He's saying, I should not put the Father to the test. Right? That's what we're talking about. So the principle here is, Scripture must be judged in the context of Scripture. Right? Now, in postmodernism, and whatever is right after postmodernism, people love interpreting things whichever way they want, which is not what we should do, right? The Bible is not made for us to use it however we want, right? Why? The specific words of Jesus are, it is also written, right? You compare verse to other verses. You compare context to other contexts. But you don't take a verse from a specific context and apply it to a different kind of problem. Right? Because the problem is, you can prove anything and everything outside, out of the Bible if you read it wrongly enough. Right? Anybody can do that. You don't have to be a Christian in order to interpret the Bible. Proofing and case is Satan, right? He's not a Christian. He quotes Bible wrongly to tempt Jesus, right? So what Jesus does is he, he brings Satan back into context, right? Never misquote the scriptures because you know why? It's intellectual theft from God. You're stealing God's word. That's what it is. We have to be extremely careful with how we use the Bible. I'm not saying don't use it, don't quote it. Use it and quote it. But be very careful how you do it. Because it is also written. Right? So again, it is an attack on the uh, sanity of faith what Satan does in this meeting. Because, again, same faith is rooted in the whole Scripture, not part of Scripture. Right? Um, if you remember, it's in the same chapter that I said that you should read. In John 17, Jesus says, Father, your word is truth. Faith is rooted in truth. Everything that God says is truth. Not just New Testament or one letter or the Old Testament or whatever. Everything, every scripture is truth. So if anything, to sum up this point, if anything, this is a warning for us to use scripture with wisdom and care. Number three. I said that this temptation is an explicit attempt to break the first and greatest commandment. Let me read the, the text. 
Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. This is one of those cases of the end justified the means kind of thing. It's almost as if Satan realizes that he's not subtle anymore, as he was with the bread, right? Turn these stones into bread, you need it, man. You're hungry. No, it's not. He's, he's realizing he remembers maybe who's, who Jesus is, who's he meeting. He remembers what the purpose of the Son is to become the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And what he's saying is, here's a shortcut. Here's a shortcut to be who you are supposed to be, but without the cross. Right? All this I will give you if you will bow down and worship me. It is extremely important to remember that the devil cannot provide what he promises. He's not allowed to. Remember Job, right? Devil, the devil cannot do anything to Job until he goes to God and God permits him to do it. Do you know who Faust is? Faust, F-A-U-S-T, Faust, the mythological character. So what, who is Faust? Faust, this is a German story from German mythology. Faust is a highly successful, let me read it. Faust is a highly successful man, yet dissatisfied with his life, which leads him to make a pact with the devil, exchanging his soul for unlimited knowledge and worldly pleasures. He is not a good model for life, right? Because that's what's happening here. I will give you anything. Anything. Right? He took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kings. Of, I mean, you can go on Mount Everest and you don't see every kingdom. Right? So imagine some visionary kind of experience in the case of Jesus and Satan where he shows him everything in the world. And says, this is yours. You just have to, just have to sing me a worship song. Right? Now, what's the problem? What's the point? Almost every single day, in almost every single challenge we face, we are tempted to take the easy way out. Have you ever taken the easy way out? It's the best thing to do. No, it's not. The easy way out. That's what this is about. Right? Imagine Jesus without the cross. You cannot imagine Jesus without the cross. This is what he offers. Right? Because if he, were, if he were to worship Satan at that point in order to get everything, there's no cross and everything is sin. Everything is dead. Now, I said that this is an attempt to uh, break the great, uh, first and greatest commandment. If I would ask you, what's the first and greatest commandment? 
Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And, and it's, this is the first and greatest commandment? Not doing it would be the first and greatest sin. Not the, not the unforgivable sin, that's something else. It's the first and greatest sin. Because if you don't do this, right? If you don't love, let me read it again. If you don't love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, you're not a Christian. Right? Think about it. So how does Jesus fight the third temptation? We're very close to the end, by the way. How does Jesus fight the third temptation? He goes to the cross. He doesn't take the easy way out. So we had three temptations. There's going to be three applications. Application number one. Jesus serves as a model to us as to know how to overcome temptation. Again, we are not tempted to turn stones into bread or, I don't know, climb the church and jump off and see who's better. But we are tempted to distrust God in challenging challenging situations, right? Again, coming back to Christian's airplane problem, right? You have to trust God in that. Because otherwise, what are you going to do? You cannot manipulate the air traffic control, right? Or washing machines. Our washing machine, well, not ours, but in our neighborhood, the washing machine broke for four days. Alma's clothes were in the stupid machine. The easiest thing to do is like, why? Why? What did I do in order to deserve this, man? Or computer not working, or car not broken, um, car not working. Right? In what kind of circumstances do you want to, not want to, do you feel like God is there? Right? We, we rage, we get angry, we shout, we do all that, and then we come to what Nietzsche said. Do you know the story with Martin Luther and his wife? Uh, Luther was extremely depressed, and one time comes home, and he sees a black drape on the door, and he's asking his wife, so why are you doing this? Who died? And whatever. And do you know what the wife says? God died. And he's like, why are you blaspheming and everything? Well, I'm not blaspheming. You're blaspheming with your depression. God is not dead. He's very much alive. Right? So we might not be tempted to jump off the church or turn stones into bread or worship Satan, but we might be tempted to forget about God's love for us or his, the fact that He's in control of every single thing happening. Or we might be tempted to take the easy way out. With everything, small or big. Number two. 
Jesus was tempted in this way so that we can be assured of his help in times of temptation. This is, this is a short point. Now, he's not only a model to us, but he's a model who has been where we are. Right? The Bible tells us he was tempted in every aspect, just like we were. Somebody was asking a stupid question. Was he tempted with homosexual love? I don't know. But he was tempted in every way that humans are tested. And he has never sinned. Number three, Jesus was tempted in this way to lead us to the cross. Now, this is probably the most relevant point. Yes, Jesus is a model. Yes, Jesus knows exactly what we go through. But he went to the cross in our place. How could he go to the cross? Because he was perfect. Because he was spotless. Because he was sinless. Because he was the, the lamb without blemish. Why was he that? I hope that you can answer the question. Why was he that? Because he didn't give in to temptation. He was spotless. He was sinless. He is the new Adam. He is the second Adam. By his obedience, death is conquered. Death brought by sin is conquered. So, in this direct face-to-face meeting, to finish on the same note that we started the whole thing, in this face-to-face meeting with Satan, Jesus proves to us that he is a perfect model, a perfect helper, and a perfect Savior, right? So just to conclude, this was a series where Jesus was meeting people face to face, woman at the well, Nicodemus, Pilate, thieves on the cross, so on and so forth. He approached each one in their own specific context and problem. He spoke the truth with love with each one of them. He showed us, almost like having a, I don't know what the name of that object is, a multifaceted object, and you see all the facets of that object. Right? He, should, he was the same Jesus in all circumstances, but he showed us different approaches to people. And the things that we learn from this is we should be exactly like that with people outside. Everybody has a specific problem, a specific life, a specific context. But Jesus had the wisdom and the humility and the love to approach every single one in their own specific context. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for the fact that you have given us the word. I pray that we would not behave in this life as if you were dead, because you are very much not dead. Your word is alive, and the word has the power to cut through bone and marrow, and to split the spirit, and to split everything in order to show what's inside of us. So Lord, help us to trust your word, to read your word, and believe your word, and help us be shaped by your word. Help us fight temptation with that word. Help us be strong and 
Help us be um, wise and when we talk to people. Help us be like Christ when we meet people face to face and give us the wisdom to know how to speak and know how to behave because probably many times we are foolish and unwise. I hope this was, Lord, a series that glorified you and honored you through what I said and what I felt. And I pray that it will be an encouragement and uh, a, a reason to build up all those who've heard these sermons, Lord. I thank you for helping me and I thank you for the fact that you love me and you love us so much. That you gave your only son to die for us. I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.